0: Section six of the Fifth Queen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Fifth Queen by Ford Maddox Ford. Part one, Chapter six. Cromwell watched the King's great back with an attentive smile. He said, ironically, that he was her ladyship's servant. I would ye were, she answered. They say you love not those that I love." I would have you not heed what men say," he answered grimly. I am deuced to those that be of good will to his highness. Those that hate me are his ill-wishers." Then the times are evil," she said, for they are many. She added suddenly, as if she could not keep a prudent silence, I am for the old faith in the old way. You have hanged many dear friends of mine whose souls I pray for." He looked at her attentively. She had a supple, long body, a fair-tinted face, fair and reddish hair, and eyes that had a glint of almond-green. But her cheeks were flushed and her eyes sparkled. She was so intent upon speaking her mind that she had forgotten the pain of her arm. She thought that she must have said enough to anger this brewer's son, but he answered only. I think you have never been in the King's court." And from his tranquil manner she realized very suddenly that this man was not the dirt beneath her feet. She had never been in the King's court. She had never indeed been out of the north parts. Her father had always been a very poor man, with an ancient castle and a small estate that he had nearly always neglected because it had not paid for the farming. Living men she had never respected for they seemed to her like wild beasts when she compared them with such of the ancients as Brutus or as Seneca. She had been made love to and threatened by such men as her cousin. She had been made love to and taught Latin by her pedagogues. She was more learned than any man she had ever met. And thinking upon the heroes of Plutarch she found the present times despicable. She hardly owed allegiance to the king. Now she had seen him and felt his consciousness of his own power she was less certain. But the king's writs had hardly run in the northern parts. Her menfolk and her mother's people had hanged their own peasants when they thought fit. She had seen bodies swinging from treetops when she rode hawking. All that she had ever known of the king's power was when convent by their castle gates had been thrown out of doors, and then her menfolk, cursing and raging, had sworn that it was the work of Crummock. Knaves ruled about the king. If knaves ruled about him, the king was not a man that one need trouble much over. Her own menfolk, she knew, had made and unmade kings. So that, when she thought of the hosts of saints and of the blessed angels that hovered, wringing their hands and weeping, above England, she had wondered a little at times why they had never unmade this king. But to her all these things had seemed very far away. She had nothing to do but to read books in the learned tongues, to imagine herself holding disquisitions upon the spiritual republic of Plato, to ride, to shoot with the bow, to do needlework, or to chide the maids. Her cousin had loved her passionately. It was true that once, when she had had nothing to her back, he had sold a farm to buy her a gown. But he had menaced her with his knife till she was weary and the ways of men were troublesome to her nevertheless she submitted to them with a patient wisdom. She submitted to the King. She submitted—though she hated him by repute—to Cromwell's catechism as they followed the King at a decent interval. He walked beside her with his eyes on her face. He spoke of the King's bounty in a voice that implied his own power. She was to be the Lady Mary's woman. He had that lady especially in his good will. He saved for her household ladies of egregious gifts, presents, and attainments. They received liberal honorariums, seven dresses by the year, veils, presents, perfumes from the King's own still-rooms, and a parcel gilt chain at the New Year. The Lady Rochford, who ruled over these ladies, was kind, courteous, free in her graces as in the liberties she allowed the ladies under her easy charge. He enlarged upon this picture as if it were a bribe that he alone could offer or withhold. And something at once cautious and priestly in his tone let her quick intuition know that he was both warning her and sounding her, to see how far her mutinous spirit would carry her. Once he said, "'There must be tranquillity in the kingdom. The times are very evil.'" She had felt very quickly that insults to this man would be a useless folly. He could not even feel them and she kept her eyes on the ground and listened to him. He went on sounding her. It was part of his profession of kingcraft to know the secret hearts of every person with whom he spoke. "'And your goodly cousin?' He paused. The King had commanded that a place should be found for him. "'Should he be best at Calais? There shall be blows struck there.' She knew very well that he was trying to discover how much she loved her cousin, and she answered in a low voice. I would have him stay here. He is the sole friend I have in this place." Cromwell said, with a hidden and encouraging meaning, her cousin was not her only friend there. Aye, but your lordship is not so old a friend as he. Not me. Call me your good servant. There is even then my uncle. Little good of a friend you will have of Norfolk. Tis a bitter apple and a very rotten plank to lean upon. She could not any longer miss his meaning. The King's scarlet and immense figure was already in the grey shadow of the arch under the tower. In walking they had come near him, and while they waited he stood for a minute, gazing back down the path with boding and pathetic eyes. Then he disappeared. She looked at Cromwell, and thanked him for the warning. Quia spicula previsa minus laedunt I would have you read it. Gaudia plus latificant he answered gravely. A man with a conch-shaped horn upturned was suddenly blowing beneath the archway seven hollow and reverberating grunts of sound that drowned his voice. A clear answering whistle came from the water-gate. Cromwell stayed, listening attentively. Another stood forward to blow four blasts, another six, another three. Each time the whistle answered. They were the great officers' signals for their barges that the men blew. And the whistle signified that these lay at readiness in the tideway. A bustle of men running, calling, and making pennons ready began beyond the archway in the quadrangle. Cromwell's face grew calm and contented. The king was sending to meet Anne of Cleves. You are well read, he asked her slowly. I was brought up in the Latin tongue, or ever I had the English. She answered. I had a good master, one that spoke the learned language always. "'Aye, Nicholas Udall,' Cromwell said. "'You know all men in the land,' she said, with fear and surprise. I had him to master for the Lady Mary, since he is well disposed." "'Tis an arrant knave, though the best of pedagogues," she answered. He was cast out of his mastership at Eton for being a rogue. "'For that the worshipful your father had him to master,' he said ironically. No. For that he was a ruined man and taught for his victuals. We welly starved at home, my sisters and I." He said slowly, "'The better need that you should grow beloved here.'" Standing there, before the bushes where no ears could overhear, he put her to more questions. She had some Greek, more than a little French, she could judge a good song, she could turn a verse in Latin or the vulgar tongue. She professed to be able to ride well, to be conversant with the terms of venery, to shoot with the bow, to have studied the fathers of the church. "'These things are well liked in high places,' he said. "'His Highness self speaks five tongues, loveth a nimble answer, and is a very noble huntsman.' He surveyed her as if she were a horse he were pricing. "'But I doubt not you have appraised yourself passing well,' he uttered. I have had some to make me pleasant speeches she answered but too many cannot be had see you he said slowly these tuckets that they blow from the gate signify that the new queen cometh with great state he bit his under lip and looked at her meaningly but a great state ensueth a great heaviness to the head of the state principis hymen principium gravitatis Tis a small matter to me. You may make it a great one to your ladyship's light fortunes." She knew that he awaited her, saying, "'I do not take your lordship,' and she pulled the hood further over her face because it was cold, and uttered the words with her eyes on the ground. "'Why,' he said readily, "'you are a lady having gifts that are much in favour in these days. Be careful to use those gifts and no others meddle in nothing that does not concern you. So you may make a great marriage with some lord in favour. But meddle in naught else." She would find many to set her an evil example. The other ladies amongst whom she was going were a mutinous lot. Let her be careful. If by her good behaviour she earned it he would put the king in mind to advance her. If by good speeches and good example, since she had a great store of learning, she could turn the hearts of these wicked ladies. If she could report to him evil designs or plots he would speak to the king in such wise that his highness should give her a great dower and any lord would marry her. Or he would advance her cousin so that he should become marriageable. She said submissively, "'Your lordship would have me become a spy upon the ladies who shall be my fellows.' He waved his hand with a large and calming gesture. "'I would have you work for the good of the state as you find it,' he said gravely. That too is a doctrine of the ancients." He cited the case of Seneca, who supported the government of Nero, and she noted that he twisted to suit his purpose Tacitus' account of the soldiers of that same prince. Nevertheless she made no comment, for she knew that it is the nature of men calmly to ask hateful sacrifices of women. But her throat ached with rage, and when she followed him along the corridors of the palace she seemed to feel that each man, each woman that they passed, hated that lord with a hatred born of fear. He walked in front of her arrogantly, as if she were a straw to be drawn along in the wind of his progress. Doors flew open at a flick of his finger. Suddenly they were in a tall room, long and dim because it faced the north. It seemed an empty cavern, but there were in it many books upon a long table and at the far end so that they looked quite small, two figures stood before a reading-pulpit. The voice of the serving-man who had thrown open the door made the words, THE LORD PRIVY SEAL OF ENGLAND, echo mournfully along the gilded and dim rafters of the ceiling. Cromwell hastened over the smooth, cold floor. The woman's figure in black, the long tail of her hood falling almost to her feet like a widow's veil, turned from the pulpit. A man remained bent down at his reading. "Annuntio vobis gaudium magnum,' Cromwell's voice uttered. The lady stood, rigid and straight, her hands clasped before her. Her face, pale so that not even a touch of red showed above the cheekbones and hardly any in the tightly pursed lips, was as if framed in her black hood that fastened beneath the chin. The high narrow forehead had the hair tightly drawn back so that none was visible, and the coif that showed beneath the hood was white like a nun's. The temples were hollowed so that she looked careworn inexpressibly, and her lips had hard lines around them. Above her head all sounds in that dim room seemed to whisper for a long time among the rafters, as if here dwelt something mysterious, sepulchral, a great grief or a great passion. "'I announce to you a master joy,' Cromwell was saying. "'I bring your layship a damsel of great erudition and knowledge of good letters.' His voice was playful and full, his back was bent supply, his face lit up with a debonair and pleasant smile. The lady's eyes turned upon the girl, forbidding and suspicious. She remained motionless. Even her lips did not move. Cromwell said that this was a Catherine of the Howards, and one fit to aid her ladyship and master Udal with their erudite commentary of Plautus his works. The man at the reading-desk looked round and then back at his book. His pen scratched upon the margin of a great volume. Catherine Howard was upon her knees, grasping at the lady's hand to kiss it. But it was snatched roughly away. This is a folly!" the voice came harshly from the pursed lips. "'Get up, wench!' Catherine remained kneeling, for this was the Lady Mary of England, a martyr for whom she had prayed nightly since she could pray. "'Get up, fool!' the voice said above her head. "'It is proclaimed treason to kneel to me. This is to risk your neck to act thus before the privy seal.' The hard words were aimed straight at the face of Cromwell. Your ladyship knows well I would fain have it otherwise," he answered softly. "'I do not ask it,' she answered." He maintained a gentle smile of deprecation, beckoning a little with his head and with his eyes, begging her for private conversation. She lifted Catherine roughly to her feet and followed him to a distant window. She seemed as if she were an automaton without will or independent motions of her own, So small were her steps, and her feet so hidden beneath her stiff black skirts. He began talking to her in a voice of which only the persuasive higher notes came into the room. At that time she was still proclaimed bastard, and her name was erased from the list of those it was lawful to pray for in the churches. At times she endured great hardships, even to going short of food, for she suffered from a wasting complaint that made her a great eater. But starvation could not make her submit to the king, her father or to the Lord Cromwell, who was ruler in the land. Sometimes they gave her a great train, strove to make her dress herself richly, and dragged her to such festivals as this of the marriage with Anne of Cleves. This was done when the Lord Privy Seal dangled her before the eyes of the Emperor of France as a match. Then it was necessary to increase the appearance of her worth in England. But sometimes the King, out of a warm and generous feeling of satisfaction with his young son, was moved to behave bountifully to his daughter and seeking to dazzle her with his munificence, gave her golden crosses and learned books annotated with his own hand, richly jewelled and with embroidered covers. Or, when the Emperor, her cousin, interceded that she should be treated more kindly, she was threatened with the block. Of late Cromwell had set himself to gain her heart with his intrigue that he could make so smooth and with his air that could be so gentle, that the King found so lovable. But nothing moved her to set her hand to a deed countenancing her dead mother's disgrace, to smile upon her father and his minister, who had devised the means for casting down her mother, or to consent to relinquish her right to the throne. So that, at times, when the cloud of the church abroad and of the rebellions all over the extremities of the kingdoms threatened very greatly, the king was driven to agonies of fear and rage lest his enemies or his subjects should displace him who was excommunicated and set her. Whom all Catholics regarded as undergoing a martyrdom, on his throne. He feared her sometimes so much that it was only Cromwell that saved her from death. Cromwell would spend hours of his busy days in the long window of her workroom, urging her to submission, dilating upon the powers that might be hers, studying her tastes to devise bribes for her. It was with that aim because her whole days in her solitude were given to the learned writers, that he had sought out for her magister Udal as a companion and preceptor who might both please her with his erudition and induce her to look kindly upon the new learning and a more lax habit of mind. But she never thanked Cromwell. Whilst he talked she remained frozen and silent. At times, under the spur of a cold rage, she said harsh things of himself and her father, calling upon the memory of her mother and the wrongs her church had suffered and on his departing, before he had even left the room she would return, frigidly and without change of face, to the book upon her desk. So the privy seal talked to her by the window for the fiftieth time. Catherine Howard saw before the high reading pulpit the back of a man in the long robes of a master of arts. He held a pen in his hand and turned over his shoulder at her a face thin, brown, humorous and deprecatory, as if he were used to bearing chiding with philosophy. "'Madister Udal," she uttered. He motioned with his mouth for her to be silent, but pointed with the feather of his quill to a line of a little book that lay upon the pulpit near his elbow. She came closer to read Circumspectatrix cum oculis emistitis' and written above it in a minute hand—a spy with eyes that peer about and stick out.' He pointed over his shoulder at the lord privy seal. "'How poor this room is for a king's daughter,' she said, without much dropping her voice. He hissed, "'Hush, hush!' with an appearance of terror, and whispered, forming the words with his lips rather than uttering them, "'How fed you and your house in the nonce!' "'I have read in many texts,' she answered, "'to pass the heavy hours.' He spoke then aloud and with an admonitory air. "'Never say the heavy hours. For what hours are heavy that can be spent with the ancient writers for companions?" She avoided his reproachful eyes with, "'My father's house was burnt last month. My cousin Culpepper is in the courts below. Dear Nick Ardham, with his lute, is dead an outlaw beyond sea, and Seferis was hanged at Doncaster—both after last year's rising. Pray all good men that God assail them!' Udal muttered, Hush, for God's dear sake! that is treason here! there is a listener behind the hangings!" He began to scrawl hastily with the dry pen that he had not time to dip in the well of ink. The shadow of the Lord Cromwell's silent return was cast upon them both, and Catherine shivered. He said harshly to the Magister, "'I will that you write me an interlude in the vulgar tone in three days' time. Such a piece as being spoken by skilful players may make a sad man laugh. Udal said, "'Well a day.' It shall get you an advancement. I am minded the peace shall be given at my house before His Highness and the new Queen in a week." Udal remained silent, dejected, his head resting upon his breast. "'For,' Cromwell spoke with a raised voice, "'it is well that the King be distracted of his griefs.' He went on as if he were uttering an admonition that he meant should be heeded and repeated. The times were very evil with risings, mutinies in close fortresses, schism and the bad hearts of men. Here therefore he would that the king should find distraction. Such of them as had gifts should display those talents for his beguiling. Such of them as had beauty should make valuable that beauty. Others whose wealth could provide them with rich garments and pleasant displays should work, each man and each woman, after his sort or hers. And I will that you report my words where either of you have resort. Who loves me shall hear it, who fears me shall take warning." He surveyed both Catherine and the master with a heavy and encouraging glance, having the air of offering great things if they aided him and avoided dealing with his enemies. The Lady Mary was gliding towards them like a cold shadow casting itself upon his warm words. She would have ignored him altogether, knowing that contempt is harder to bear than bitter speeches. But the fascination of hatred made it hard to keep aloof from her father's instrument. He looked negligently over his shoulder and was gone before she could speak. He did not care to hear more bitter words that could make the breach between them only wider, since words once spoken are so hard to wash away, and the bringing of this bitter woman back to obedience to her father was so great a part of his religion of kingcraft. In that, when it came, there should be nothing but concord and oblivion of bitter speeches, silent loyalty, and a throne upheld, revered, and unassailable." Udal groaned lamentably when the door closed upon him. "'I shall write to make men laugh—in the vulgar tone—I—to gain advancement.' The Lady Mary's face hardly relaxed. "'Others of us take harder usage from my lord,' she said. She addressed Catherine. "'You are named after my mother. I wish you a better fate than your namesake had.' Her harsh voice dismayed Catherine, who had been prepared to worship her. She had eaten nothing since dawn, and she had travelled very far, and with this discouragement the pain in her arm came back. She could find no words to say, and the lady married continued bitterly. "'But if you love that dear name and would sojourn near me, I would have you hide it. for though I care little, I would yet have women about me that believe my mother to have been foully murdered." "'I cannot easily dissemble,' Catherine found her tongue. "'Where I hate I speak things disparaging.' "'That I attest to of old,' Udal commented. "'But I shall be shamed before all learned doctors if I write in the vulgar tongue.' "'Silence is ever best for me,' the Lady Mary answered her deadly. "'I live in the shadows that I love.' That, for surely, shall be reversed," Catherine said loyally. I do not ask it," Mary said. Wherefore must I write in the vulgar tongue? udal asked again. O oh, mistress of my actions and my heart! What whim is this? The King is an excellent good Latinist. Too good," the Lady Mary said bitterly. With his learning he hath overset the Church of Christ. She spoke harshly to Catherine. What reversal should give my mother her life again? Wench, wench! Then she turned upon Udal indifferently. God knows why this man would have you write in the vulgar tongue, but so he wills it. Udal groaned. My dinner hour is here, the Lady Mary said. I am very hungry. Get you to your writing, and take this lady to my women. End of section six.